Mark chapter 11. Would you please find Mark 11? We have worked our way through this chapter over several weeks now, and this chapter began with the triumphal entry. You may remember Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That was the first time he allowed others to proclaim him, to recognize him as the king, the Messiah. That's what was going on there. And some of them took their outer garments off and put them either on the donkey as a saddle or on the ground. And then they cut down branches from palm trees and they they waved them and they put those down. They cried, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us. They're recognizing him as the Messiah. They're fulfilling prophecy. That was the beginning. He came in. That was Sunday of Passion Week. He came in. He looked around the temple didn't say anything else, didn't do anything else, went out to Bethany for the night. That was the first day. Then we studied that on Monday, Jesus cursed the fruitless fig tree and the corrupt temple. This time when Jesus entered the temple, he turned over the tables of the money changers and he turned over the seats of those who were selling doves and he stopped people from carrying things through the temple. Why? Because he was condemning both the tree and the temple, for their hypocrisy. The tree had the appearance of fruit but had nothing but leaves. And the religious leaders in the temple had the appearance of religious activity, but they had no heart for God. So Jesus was condemning both. That was Monday. On Tuesday morning, this is this passage we studied last week, Peter and the other disciples were amazed to find that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed had already withered from its roots. And Jesus used that miracle to teach his disciples and us about prayer and about forgiveness. And that brings us to our passage for today, in which Jesus and his disciples return to the temple complex. So this is continuing on Tuesday of Passion Week. And various religious groups begin to confront him and question him and challenge him. That's what we're going to study this morning. I'd like you to stand, please. I'm going to read our passage, verses 27 to the end of the chapter. So you follow along as I read these verses. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question. Then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you that we have your word and that in it you are speaking to us today. So as we consider this idea of authority and and your authority in our lives, would you give us understanding? May these words come alive to us today. May your Holy Spirit accomplish with them in us what seems good to you. Holy Spirit, empower me 
to speak your word today and give all of us ears and hearts ready to receive that message. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we continue into chapter 12 in future studies, we're going to see that on Tuesday and Wednesday, different groups kept coming to Jesus and asking him questions and trying to trick him and challenging him. They challenged his authority. We see that today. We'll also see that they're going to challenge his integrity, his theology, his priorities. Now, even though they didn't know it, those who were coming and questioning him were fulfilling, if not a prophecy, then at least a type from the Old Testament. Because this week, this festival they were celebrating, this is the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you go all the way back to Exodus 12 and read about when God instituted, through Moses, the Passover, part of that observance was that each family, or sometimes multiple families, would have their own lamb. It would almost become a pet to them. It it lived with them. They lived with it. And for four days, they were supposed to watch that lamb and to observe it and to see if there was any blemish, any spot, any defect in that lamb. And then at the time of the Passover, they would sacrifice that lamb. They would butcher it. So this is the week of the Passover. These are the days leading up to the Passover. Who is the perfect spotless lamb? That's Jesus. He's standing in front of them. And what are they doing? They're examining him. Tuesday and Wednesday, they're examining him. Over that first four days of the week, they're examining him to see if they can find some spot, some blemish, some error, some falsehood in him. The key word for this passage is authority. Let's let that override everything I say today, that this is about authority. It's about Jesus' authority. And they're questioning, do you really have that authority? So within the context of authority, I have two main ideas for you that we're going to talk about at the beginning and then for a little bit longer at the end. And these main points are, number one, Jesus has all authority. Please don't make any mistake about that. All authority belongs to him. God the Father has put everything underneath his feet. His is the name that is above all names. Jesus has all authority. Number two, if you reject Jesus' authority, he will reject you. So we're going to look at some parallel passages at the end of the message that explain those main points further. But those are the two ideas that I'd like you to take with you today. Jesus has all authority, and if you reject Jesus' authority, he will reject you. Now I'd like to offer you an outline. This is about as simple an outline as you may ever see. But here's the way this passage goes. We have a question and another question. And no answer and no answer. That's what's going on here. The religious authorities are going to come ask Jesus a question to trap him. They really ask him two questions. And he says, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And they decide that they can't answer his question without incriminating themselves. So he says, if you won't answer my question, I won't answer yours. That's the pattern. That's what's going on here in these verses. Let's go back to verse 27. We're going to work through it verse by verse. In verse 27, Mark writes, Then they came again to Jerusalem they being Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? 
when it says they came again to Jerusalem, this is something that's been happening. It happened on Sunday, happened on Monday, now it's happening on Tuesday. He's staying out in Bethany overnight, coming into Jerusalem each day. This is the third, this is the final time he is going to come publicly into Jerusalem. And when it says he's walking in the temple, just as we talked about last time, the temple complex, specifically, this is one court area. In the court of the Gentiles, this is Solomon's porch on the south side of that court. And this was a, a place where rabbis, teachers, gathered all the time to teach their disciples, to answer questions of people. So that, this is what was going on there day, maybe not day and night, but all day, every day pretty much, is that rabbis would be teaching in this particular location. And a group came to Jesus there in Solomon's porch, and it says here that they are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And we read that and think, okay, I think I know who that group is, that group, yeah, okay. Well, put together, they represent the Sanhedrin. This is the same group that would put Jesus on trial later that week. And not saying that all of them were there, that would have been 71 people, but representatives of all three of these groups, we might call it the Supreme Court of Israel of that time, they were a religious body, they had the authority. They had the religious authority of that time and place. So they came to Jesus to ask him a question. Question one is, by what authority are you doing these things? That's the first thing they're going to ask him. They wanted to know his credentials in the same way that if you have blue lights behind you, then that officer is going to ask you for your license and registration. What are your credentials? Prove who you are. That's what they're doing here. What authority is backing what you are doing? And this was within their right in the sense that they, as the religious leaders of Israel, were supposed to examine teachers to make sure that they were teaching truth that they were being accurate. That was their job, if you will. So they're doing their job, but as we're going to see as we get deeper into this, they're not really asking him a question. They really want to trap him. The issue here is authority. David Jeremiah said that for the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they believed that they had the authority, but they feared that Jesus was going to take it from them. So they're acting out of fear. They're acting out of jealousy when they come to him with this question. This is not the first time that we have dealt with this word authority in the book of Mark. I'm going to take us way back to chapter 1, and I'll put these verses on the screen. You can go back to chapter 1 if you want to, because we're going to look at chapter 1 again in a minute, too. But Mark 1.22, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and it says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. And way back when we did chapter 1, probably about a year ago now, we talked about the fact that in that day, in that time, all the scribes would do is, quote, Rabbi so-and-so says this about this passage. Rabbi so-and-so says this about this passage. And they didn't have any of their own authority. So when Jesus stood up and said, Verily I say to you, that was a big difference. He's saying, I say, not Rabbi Hillel, not Rabbi Gamaliel, not any of these other rabbis that you've studied or heard of, I am saying to you. So he's teaching as one who has his own authority behind his teaching, but that's not all. A few verses later, verse 27. Then they were all amazed. 
so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So he has authority in his teaching. He has authority over demons. He has authority over the spiritual realm. His power to command demons, and they obey him. And this is blowing the crowd away. They can't believe this. One more, the next chapter, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power, that's our same word for authority, same Greek word, power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, the man who couldn't walk, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. He's saying he has power over the physical, and he has power over the supernatural, the spiritual. Because what he's doing is forgiving that man's sins and telling him, arise, walk. And he's healing him from paralysis. So Jesus has authority. And if, if we go back now to this passage in Mark 11, I'm going to go back there for a minute. Mark 11, he, they asked, by what authority are you doing these things? And like the good lawyers that they were, they were being intentionally vague about what they were saying. They didn't define these things. We're just going to let you answer the question and, and try to figure out what we mean by these things. Probably what they meant was, what gives you the right to come in here and take over and clean house on our temple? We have a really good business going here, and you're messing with it. You took away our means of income by overcharging for the currency exchange and overcharging for the animals that we're selling for sacrifice. What gives you the right to do that? They're angered by that. That's probably what they meant, but because they're vague, it could refer to anything he had done over his three-year ministry. That brings us to the second question. Who gave you this authority? What is your authority and who gave it to you? Who gave you this authority? Because they're assuming by their question that what he's been doing, someone must have authorized this. And we didn't. Because the way it normally worked is that a rabbi was trained under another rabbi, and once that rabbi thought he was ready, then he would release him and he would bring along his own followers and so they had a succession of authority and power that way. And they're saying, none of us trained you. Certainly nobody in Nazareth trained you. Who gave you this authority? That's what they're asking him. But it was common in that culture to respond to a question with a question. And that's what Jesus did. They're trying to trap him because if he had answered, if he had just answered the question and said, my authority is from God, they would have said he was a blasphemer. If he had said, my authority is from me, they would have said, well, that's illegitimate. Nobody needs to pay any more attention to you. So instead, he countered with a question. And that's in verse 29. He's going to change the subject, if you will, and talk about John the Baptist. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? There's his question. And then he repeats, answer me. Because as we get to the next verses, it seems like they're ho-ha, just, mm, I don't know, mm, pausing. They're not going to answer the question. He's saying, answer me. I, I'm looking for an answer here. So what is his question all about? I think this is kind of fun. These religious officials, 
questioned Jesus' authority. And Jesus responded by questioning their authority to question his authority. And I'll say that again because it sounds like nonsense, but it's not. They questioned Jesus' authority, and Jesus responded by questioning their authority to question his authority. That's what's going on here. He's turning the tables on them. And he begins to talk about the baptism of John. And when it says the baptism of John, we call him John the Baptist. That is the focal point. That is the most memorable, the best known aspect of his ministry, that he was baptizing in the wilderness. But Jesus is really talking about all of John's ministry. Who authorized that? That's what he's asking them. So again, I'm going to go back to Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading at Mark 1.1. We're going to read the first three verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We've covered these verses a long time ago. But what is the point here? Who is my messenger at the end of verse 2? Who's that talking about? Not a trick question, guys. Who is my messenger? Okay, thank you for the two of you who answered that. John, John the Baptist. That's my messenger. He's the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. So, who sent John and therefore gave him his authority? God, I'm, I'm really not trying to trick you guys right now. Just relax a little bit. Maybe later, but right now I'm not trying to trip you up whatsoever. Who is my messenger? That would be John. Who sent John and gave him his authority? God. That's important to our discussion. Continuing verses 4 and 5. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. How? Doing what? Confessing their sins. So what defined John's ministry? What defined his ministry? People were coming to him for him to do what? Baptize them. More of you are participating. Thank you. They came to be baptized. And what were they showing when they were being baptized? The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. They're saying, I have sins. And I need God to forgive me. I am confessing. I am agreeing with God that my sin is against him. And I, I desire to have a right relationship with him again. So I'm humbling myself, and I'm coming to you, John. I would like you to baptize me. To sh- I'm going to show everyone else I am sorry for my sin. I'm confessing that I have sinned. I have done wickedness against God. That's what his ministry was about. That's what he was known for. But here's the thing. Someone else came to be baptized by him. Verses 9 through 11 of that same chapter. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came forth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Who came to be baptized by John? Jesus. Now, did Jesus have any sin? No. Jesus had never sinned, never did, never will. He was sinless, but he was doing that as an example for us and showing submission. The Father had directed him to do this. The Father had directed John that 
Whoever you see, when you baptize somebody, if you see the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on that one, that is the promised one. That is the Messiah. So there's prophecy going on here. And Jesus came and John agreed, yes, I will baptize you. So who is the most famous person baptized by John? That would be Jesus. And who approved of Jesus' baptism and therefore John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, which was about to begin? God. So they, the religious leaders, were coming to Jesus and saying, who gave you the authority to do these things? And he backs up three years and wants to talk about John. And what was John known for? Baptism. And who was the best known person who had been baptized by John? That would be Jesus. And was God pleased with that? Yes, he was. So it seems like Jesus isn't answering the question, but let's face it, he was answering the question. Because at the beginning of his ministry, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was before Jesus had done any miracles. That was before he had taught anything publicly. He said, I'm pleased with him. So just by going back to a brief history of John the Baptist, we really have our answer. Who has given Jesus the authority to do what he's doing? God the Father himself. And anyone who acknowledges John the Baptist's ministry would therefore acknowledge the ministry of Jesus. You with me? This isn't that hard, but it's really hard for them because they aren't going to admit the truth. So he says again, answer me. Answer me. He gives them only two alternatives. That's fun too. He makes it multiple choice. The baptism of John. Is it from heaven or is it from men? Those are your two choices. Answer me. Verse 31. And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, and in my translation, I have a little dash there. They don't even finish their statement. They feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. That was a lie. They knew. But they couldn't admit the truth. Why? Here it says, they feared the people. Psalm 29, 25. Sorry, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. One of the worst kinds of fear, one of the ones that's going to make you make some really bad decisions is the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare. Fear of other people, sometimes, especially with young people, we call that peer pressure. If it's a negative form of peer pressure to, to do something wrong or, or not to do something right, that's bad. And the fear of man, the fear of people, will ensnare us. It's a trap. And it had trapped these religious leaders. So they took the coward's way out. We don't know. They claim to be ignorant, and they are not ignorant. They know the truth. The fact is that they had chosen to reject John and Jesus. Because for some people, it's not a lack of evidence. Maybe you've tried to share the gospel with somebody before who has this objection and that objection and wants to debate this and that and the other thing and just won't listen. 
And yeah, we do need to do our best to prepare and be ready to give an answer. But ultimately, it's not about how much evidence I can provide. It's about your willingness to listen and believe. Some people would rather ignore and deny the evidence than deal with it and respond to it. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior from sin. Finishing verse 33, And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that may seem to you a little bit harsh. Why won't he answer their question? Well, there are two reasons, at least two reasons, that somebody might ask a question. One is to get information. And we do that every day. How are you? That's a question. It's to get information, usually. Sometimes we use it just as a greeting. But there are other times where you can challenge somebody with a question. One of our children just got his license. So he's at level two. He can drive. So what I'm about to tell you is purely hypothetical. It hasn't happened and maybe never will. But if he were to come in the house past the time we told him to be home and the first words out of my mouth are, do you know what time it is? My purpose of the conversation at that point is not about the time. I have a watch. We have clocks in our house. I know what time it is, right? So I'm not asking that question to obtain information. I'm asking that question as a challenge. And that's what they had done. They were not interested in the answer. They were interested only in trapping him, and that's why they wouldn't answer his question. They had no willingness to follow his teaching. And we covered this earlier in the book of Mark as well. Back in chapter 4 is the principle that we will not get new information, new truth given to us if we reject what we've received. Here's how it's worded there. Mark 4.24, Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you, and to, to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has... To him, more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Again, that may seem harsh to you, but the fact is that if you respond to the revelation that has been granted to you, he's saying, I'm going to give you more light. If you act on the light I give you, I'm going to give you more light. If you refuse the light, you're not going to get any more. That's what he's saying. And that's the reason he's reacting as he does to these religious leaders. They are not there to get information. They are not there with a seeking heart, a humble heart, a teachable heart. They are there because they believe that their authority is being threatened. And they're responding in fear, fear of who Jesus is and fear of people. So we've reached the end of our verses for today, but I want to spend a few minutes applying this further. Because... I fear that some of us could study this passage and walk away thinking, well, I'm not challenging Jesus' authority. I'm not asking him questions when I pray, not that kind of question, not the accusatory type of question. So I'm good. He's not here on earth. I'm not going to go challenge him in the temple. That was interesting, Bob. Let's go home. How does this apply to us today? What are we supposed to do with this? 
the main points, as I gave them to you at the beginning, Jesus has all authority. And if you reject Jesus' authority, he will reject you. And I have some references there, so now I want to explore those for a minute. Philippians 2. It's a famous passage of Scripture talking about Jesus humbling himself. He was in heaven. He had all authority, all rights, all power. And he humbled himself and came to dwell in human flesh in order to sacrifice himself for us, to be crucified, to be killed in our place. Here are two of those verses of that section. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, what's that next word? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That statement that Jesus is Lord, what are other ways we could say that? Because Lord, yes, in some ways, back in that culture, Lord was similar to how we would use Sir today, a a name of respect. But over time, as you continue reading the New Testament, it didn't mean just, this is a respectful term to address you, it meant Jesus is God, to say that Jesus is Lord. He is master, but he is also God. So that statement that Jesus is Lord also means that Jesus is God. To use some other references, he has all authority. That's what Matthew 28, 18 says. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jude, in that short epistle, that one chapter, he describes Jesus as our only sovereign and Lord. Revelation, the end of the New Testament, says that he is Lord of lords. So what does that mean to me? Well, if I'm an unbeliever, if I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then my rejection of Jesus' authority during my lifetime will mean his rejection of me for eternity. Matthew 7, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It is possible to do all the right things and to say all the right things and not to have a relationship with God through Jesus. That's what's being described here. At at the end of the age, I may know how to talk. I may know how to act. I may have everybody else fooled, but I can't fool Jesus. He knows whether I acknowledge him as Lord in my heart and with my life. And if I don't, the evidence indicates that I don't know him. He's not my Savior, and therefore he will reject me for eternity. So what do I do about that? You call on him. Ask him to save you. And if you've already done that, if you're a believer, what does it look like for you? I will acknowledge him as my Lord with my heart and with my life. John 14, 15, Jesus said this, If you love me, keep my commandments. Obey my word. Keep my word. If you love me, if you are my follower, if you are my disciple, if you have a relationship with me, keep my commandments. 
someone put it this way, in saying Jesus is Lord, we commit ourselves to obey him. An acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship is logically accompanied by a submission to Jesus' authority. If Jesus is Lord, then he owns us. He has the right to tell us what to do. Luke 6, 46. Again, the words of Jesus. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? I'm not talking about Christianity being a checklist of I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, can't do that, 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 that. That's not what I mean. But I do mean that if you have a relationship with Christ, your life is going to change. By his grace, through the process we call sanctification, you're going to become more like Jesus and more like Jesus as the days and the years go by. There's going to be a change in your life. And if there's never been a change in your life, then maybe you don't have a relationship with him. I've said this before because we had several messages a few weeks ago about what it means to be a disciple, what Jesus taught his disciples about following him. And I don't want us to have the wrong idea that there are two different classes. There are those who are Christians, they're saved, they're going to go to heaven, they're not going to go to hell, but they look just like the world. And then there are these disciples, the super Christians, the ones who follow Jesus with their whole life. The Bible doesn't know that definition. Those who are his, those who are saved, those who are followers of Christ will have fruit. They will be different from the world around them. What I'm saying is that if you are saved, you will be a follower of Christ. To say it a little differently, if I have saving faith, I'll understand that being a follower of Jesus means dying to my own will and the desires of my sinful flesh and considering myself and those desires dead so that I can serve and follow him. Here's what we looked at maybe a couple months ago, I don't know. Mark 8, 34. When he had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. We talked about that. And take up his cross. We talked about that too. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's an upside down kingdom. It's not what we expect. But it's what he demands. One more verse. My desires, I have to die to those too. Romans six eleven. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What am I saying? I'm saying that if we are followers of Christ, it involves giving something up. As I read the New Testament, I don't see that I can just say a prayer, acknowledge Jesus with my mouth, Jesus is my Savior, and that anything's happened. I have to believe in my heart. And when I believe in my heart, there will be a change in my life. Not that I'm perfect. Not that I stop sinning. 
but that by God's grace, I'm going to make decisions to deny myself, to deny my sinful flesh, to deny what I want to do in favor of his kingdom. Because isn't that the example we have? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was left. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to be a servant. If he hadn't done that, we wouldn't be sitting here. If he hadn't come as a servant, if he hadn't denied himself, both in terms of his own life and his own fleshly desires, saying no to temptation so that he never sinned, he wouldn't be our Savior. But he did and he is. So where do you find yourself today? Do you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord with your mouth? Can you say, Jesus is Lord? Good. If you can say yes to that question, good. But don't stop there. Do you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord with your life? Because that's what this comes down to. What was the problem that the religious leaders had? They were denying his authority. You don't have the authority to come in here and make changes to our temple. Well, guess what? We talked last week about the fact that our bodies as believers are temples of the Holy Spirit. And yet some of us say, you have no right, Lord, to make changes to my temple. Are you obeying him? Is he truly Lord of your life? If not, then come to him today. Call on him for salvation. Acts 16, 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Bob, are you saying that I have to change in order to come to God? No, I'm not saying that. Salvation is a gift from God. It's not based on any works that we do. But when we have it, we will follow him and there will be works that accompany salvation. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anyone who would say, Bob, I'm burdened this morning. I'm thinking about what you said. I have some questions. I have some concerns. But I do know that I want Jesus to save me. Would you pray for me? And you can let me know that by either slipping your hand up and back down or just making eye contact with me long enough for me to see that you're looking at me. You're saying, Bob, I don't know whether I'm saved, but I want to be. I want to know that. Believers? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning? Are you acknowledging Jesus' authority in your life? If you're a believer and you'd like me to remember you as I close in prayer, same thing. Catch my eye or lift your hand and put it back down that you're making a decision. Yes, anyone else? Okay. 
Father, more important than hands or eyes, you see hearts. And you know those who are making decisions right now, those who are doing business with you. Father, do a work among us. Give your Holy Spirit reign in our hearts. Let the statement that Jesus is Lord be more than just words. I pray for this one who is concerned about his soul. Lord, may your Holy Spirit draw that one to you to understand the gospel, to believe the gospel, to know the risen Christ. Lord, for those who are making decisions as Christians, who want their bodies to be a living sacrifice to you, who want to turn their back on sin and repent and forsake it, Lord, may we be obedient. May you have the rightful place in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.